Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your spider translator, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features killer doos, splatter galore, and sneaky spiders. Last episode was full of lovely recommendations. That luck has to continue, right? Right? Let's go to the salon and talk about horror movies while we get fresh cuts. Number 1, Bad Hair, 2020, directed by Justin Simeon. A woman named Anna is an assistant at Culture, a network that focuses on black musicians. Grant Madison, the white owner of Culture, changes the head of programming to make the station appeal to a wider audience. The head programmer is a former supermodel named Zora. Zora likes Anna's ideas, but says she needs to update her look to fit in. Anna goes to a salon and gets a weave from a stylist named Virgie. Anna's landlord tries to force himself on her, so she stabs him in self-defense. Her weave then enters the wound and drains his blood, killing him. There's an old folktale about a slave that found beautiful hair that ended up being the hair of dead witches that possessed the slave and killed people. Zora also has a weave that's hungry for blood. Anna's hair possesses Anna and kills her ex-boyfriend Julius. Anna tries to have the weave removed, but the hair kills everyone in the salon she goes to. Anna confronts Zora, who agrees that the weaves need to be stopped. Zora's weave kills her after she tries to cut it. Zora's weave then possesses her body. Multiple weave-possessed bodies chase Anna, who is able to get away by setting off sprinklers, which allow her to cut off her weave. Turns out Grant Madison is also a plantation owner, and the possessed witch hair grows on the land. Virgie, Grant Madison, and the possessed hair of dead witches he harvests are the killers. Virgie knows that her weaves are evil. That summary was pretty dense. I tried to keep it short while still having all the killers and important plot points in there. Bad Hair isn't the first movie about killer hair that's shown up on my radar. There's another movie called Exta from Sciencesono that's about deadly hair. I've been looking for Exta for a while, but whenever I try to find it, another Japanese movie about killer hair extensions called Hair Extension that looks like a whack ripoff of Exta pops up instead. Back to talking about an American movie about killer hair. Bad Hair starts off as an interesting look at the societal pressures black women face regarding their hair. Then the movie gets strangely goofy. Bad Hair is listed as a comedy, but it doesn't feel like one until the weave takes out three people in a salon. Nothing that happens before that is comedic. What happens in the salon isn't overly humorous, but two of the three salon deaths are so absurd that it's obvious that Bad Hair was going for laughs. Two characters fall down as if they were tripped by a middle school bully sticking their foot out, 
and instead of taking a small tumble, both characters try to cushion the falls with their cheeks. Their face cheeks. They die instantly. It's bizarre. Maybe the gravity in the salon was altered by an unseen supervillain gravity controlling machine or something. After the salon deaths, the comedy starts ramping up, but none of it really lands. Specific examples of attempted jokes aren't even coming to mind. Most of the comedy attempts stem from the absurdity that is killer hair. The killer hair in action looks great. Most of it appears to have been done using CGI, but there are also practical elements. The hair lurching into open wounds and making its way through tight spaces like door frames as it pursues Anna all looks fantastic. Even though the hair loves blood, there isn't much of it in Bad Hair. The goriest scene by far is when possessed Anna goes to town on her ex's torso with a broken wine glass as a makeshift disembowelment tool. The gore for the wine and dye was practically executed and well done, but the most yeesh-inducing scene in the movie is when the hair decides to plunge into a small cut Anna gets on her finger. Anna pulling hair out of the finger wound will definitely stay with me. The acting is solid for the most part. I recognized a ton of people. Lena Waithe, Judas Scott, Laverne Cox, Kelly Rowland, Usher... They got the perfect white person to play the scumbag plantation-owning evil hair-dispensing boss man. That's right, James Vanderbeek is also in the movie. Elle Lorraine plays the main character, Anna Bloodzo. Her performance as a whole works, but there are highly questionable reactions, like how she reacts after her landlord almost forced himself on her before being murdered by her weave. She's just like, huh, that was a little strange. While on the topic of strange, the way the beginning of the movie is cut together is odd. I can't quite put my finger on it, but the way the shots flow together felt a bit jarring. Maybe it was the transitioning. Another oddity was Anna's uncle. Her uncle was played by Blair Underwood. He doesn't look old enough to play Anna's uncle, so what I'm assuming was a can of gray hairspray was brought in to age him up. It looked distractingly off. Bad hair is the name of the movie. They should have just let him keep his natural hair color. Bad hair is an interesting look into societal pressures black women face when it comes to their hair. Until it's not. The ending hair rampage goes on a bit too long and the tone jumps all over the place. There are some fun moments, but I can't recommend this one due to the lackluster last act. Speaking of movies with bad third acts... Number 2, Evil Ed, 1995, directed by Anders Jacobson. An editor named Ed is transferred to the blood and gore department after the previous editor blew up his own head with a grenade. After a couple days of editing a slasher series called Loose Limbs, Ed loses his grip on reality and starts killing people. He also beats up a guy named Nick that works at the same company. Ed's taken to a psychiatric ward where he escapes and kills even more people. Nick takes down Ed with a shotgun. Ed is the killer. Evil Ed has a great premise. An editor has to watch a bunch of gory horror movies that eventually drive him insane. It's a great shell to fill with a bunch of random gore clips. I'm assuming all horror fans have a great hilarious kill idea, but don't have a story to stuff it into. Along comes a movie where any zany slasher idea can come to life without the need of a cohesive plot. Evil Ed takes advantage of its own premise a few times by showing ridiculous clips from the in-movie movie movie series Loose Limbs. 
All of the Loose Limbs footage is splatter comedy gold and perfectly stupid. Loose Limbs being a parody of schlock-filled slashers series allows it to be over the top with terrible acting and blood-gushing practical effects. Everything with Loose Limbs is great. The issues arise when the editing stops. Ed's descent into madness is way too fast. Ed's first victim is his boss. Boss stopped by. Ed had a visual hallucination that caused his boss to transform into a Ted Curry from Legend mixed with handsome Squidward Abomination. The demon monster boss seemed to be attacking him, so in self-defense, Ed snapped his boss's neck. After this, Ed realizes he killed his normal human boss, causing him to feel remorse and guilt. For maybe five minutes. Right after this kill, Ed has an extreme hankering for murder. He dispatches two home invaders without a second thought, and then attempts to cut up his wife and daughter who come to check on him. Ed knows that the people he is trying to kill are indeed his wife and daughter. He's not having any hallucinations at this point. He went from killed my demon boss in self-defense to time to slaughter my family in the blink of an eye. This is the main reason that evil Ed fails. Since Ed's turn to complete Psycho is done so quickly, the fun fake movie editing sequences disappear and are replaced by a groaningly bad hospital sequence. It can't be understated how much all of the fun grinds to an absolute halt shortly after making it to the hospital location. Sure, Ed hallucinating that the nurse has a spooky monster face and eventually having his arm and head blown off with a shotgun is fun and all, but everything in the hospital setting is figuratively a sleep aid. If less time was spent in the hospital and more time was spent with the wonderful practical gore and monsters, Evil Ed would be an easy recommendation. The effects work is entertaining and wacky. The limbs hacked off in the loose limbs clips, Ed's shotgun-induced cheek wound, and decapitation all look fantastic. Demon Boss, knockoff Fridge Gremlin, and Monster Face Nurse are great. More practical effects fun, less painfully boring hospital. Evil Ed is a Swedish movie. Everyone on screen is Swedish. Only one character isn't dubbed by an American. As you could probably guess, this makes all of the spoken dialogue completely insane and goofy. The abysmal dubbing definitely makes the movie more entertaining. As a big fan of the splatstick genre, I was very disappointed with Evil Ed. It has nuggets of what makes the genre great, but instead of there being steady entertainment throughout, there are a few exciting spikes here and there surrounded by flat lines. If you're a Splatstick fan yourself, consider watching clips from Evil Ed. There's no reason to waste your time watching the entire thing. Number 3, Itsy Bitsy, 2019, directed by Micah Gallo. A man named Akiba and his henchmen kill some native people and steal an artifact called the Black Egg of Malkalartri. Akiba gifts the egg to a man named Walter, since his wife Maggie was nice to Akiba when he was a child. Walter doesn't want the egg, but Akiba leaves it in his house. A woman named Kara moves into the house next door to Walter after being hired as his live-in nurse. She brings her two kids, Jesse and Cambria, with her. She had another kid named Stevie who died in a car accident that Kara blames herself for. 
Akiba goes back to Walter's house and smashes the egg, releasing a giant spider. The spider bites and kills Akiba and eventually does the same to Walter. Kara ends up bitten while protecting her kids and uses her remaining strength to kill the spider. Kara lives. Akiba, his henchmen, and the spider are the killers. Kara blames herself for Stevie's death, but the movie didn't show the true cause of the crash. Itsy Bitsy is an amazing practical effects showcase woven into a mediocre movie. Almost all the characters are unlikable. Cambria, the daughter, is okay. The best character, though? That's obviously Curiosity. Who? Well, you see, Walter says Curiosity killed the cat, and pet warning, the spider, whose name must be Curiosity, does in fact kill one. It's not disturbing or anything. You're telling me the best, most likable character in Itsy Bitsy is a cat-killing giant spider named Curiosity? Indeed I am. Barring Cambria, and I guess her brother, Jesse, everyone else deserves death by spider. The most despicable character in the movie is Kara. Itsy Bitsy tries to make you feel for Kara and thinks she deserves a redemption arc by showing her struggle with PTSD that stems from a car crash she was in where one of her other kids named Stevie was killed. I don't remember Cambria or Jesse even acknowledging the existence of Stevie, which is odd. Losing a child must be hard, but it doesn't excuse Kara's behavior. She's a terrible mom. She doesn't care about Cambria or Jesse at all. She makes Jesse do all of Cambria's parenting. When Kara's supposed to be working as Walter's nurse, she's eating at a diner with Tasha Yar instead while her kids are left to eat cold SpaghettiOs. Denise Crosby plays a cop in Itsy Bitsy that doesn't really do anything at all besides make you think about Star Trek The Next Generation. Back to horrible Kara. Kara steals Walter's Oxycontin. At one point, the spider captures Cambria in some webbing in the attic. Jesse is cutting her out with some scissors. Kara stumbles into the attic and sees this. Jesse tells her to not do anything because the spider appears to be sleeping. Instead of letting Jesse finish snipping Cambria free, Kara starts creakily walking towards them for no reason. She doesn't end up waking up the spider because the spider was never actually asleep, but still, you're the worst, Kara. Kara was bitten by the spider, which received cheers from myself and everyone watching, seeing as Itsy Bitsy was watched for my weekly horror movie watch party, Blood and Bone, that happens on Monday nights at 7pm Central at my Twitch stream, Bonesaw Baker. But since Kara had been pumping herself full of toxins instead of paying attention to her children, she survived a giant old spider bite. Cambria kinda gets bitten, which was completely unexpected and gnarly. She gets spider fangs through her hand though, so no venom makes it into her bloodstream. Fangs going through a little girl's hand was definitely yeesh inducing. There are three spider bites shown, and all of them are icky and gooey. They look incredibly disgusting. Curiosity looks amazing most of the time she's on screen. There are a few iffy looking stop motion sequences where she crawls across floors, but her popping out of the egg sack thing and creeping out from behind things 
looked fantastic. There's an accidentally comedic scene where Curiosity is hiding under Cambria's bed. Cambria asks her mom to look under the bed for monsters, and there's a quick cut to Curiosity who gives the camera a look that says, Oh crap! Luckily, Kara is a terrible mom and doesn't look under the bed until Curiosity accidentally kicks a toy out from under it while scuttling out the window. Kara should have died. These kids could have gotten loving foster parents. I know the system is bad, but Kara can't be better. For those wondering, no, the song The Itsy Bitsy Spider is not included in the movie. Itsy Bitsy is a spider movie that's not campy or intriguing enough to stand on its own eight legs. Watch Arachnophobia or Eight-Legged Freaks instead. The latter has to still be fun, right? Maybe it's time for a rewatch. Oh, and one last thing. Bruce Davison played Walter. He was the original Willard. He was pretty bad in Itsy Bitsy, and I wish he was Barry Bostwick instead. Number 4, Father's Day, 2011, directed by Astron6. After his father is murdered, a man named Ahab hunts down a serial dad killer named Fookman. Ahab is tricked into killing someone's dad after he's led to believe the dad was Fookman. Years later, Ahab is out of prison and Fookman is killing dads again. Ahab teams up with a boy named Twink and a priest named John to take down Fookman. Ahab's sister Chelsea also helps. Ahab kills Fookman, but his spirit possesses Chelsea. Chelsea and Ahab bang, which creates an all-powerful demon Fookman in hell. Ahab, Twink, and John kill themselves to go to hell and defeat demon Fookman. Fookman, his cult, and Ahab are the killers. To start things off, yes, Father's Day has a ton of edgelord comedy in it. It's insane how far we've come as a society since 2011. In the summary, I only stated that Fookman was a serial dad killer. He was also a serial dad rapist. Yeah. I still listen to mindless self-indulgence in private. I'm not some holier-than-thou dude who won't laugh at messed-up humor. Father's Day's comedy in general is surprisingly weak. And for the most part, just plain doesn't work. I can recall a few bits here and there that were kind of humorous, but most of the comedy falls flat. The Astron 6 guys wrote, directed, and starred in the movie. Of the main three that acted in it, only Adam Brooks gives a decent performance. Brooks was fantastic and funny in Psycho Goreman, but not so much in Father's Day. Even though Brooks isn't stellar, he has a much more entertaining presence when compared to his other co-stars, Matthew Kennedy and Connor Sweeney, who played Father John and Twink, respectively. The true star is Mackenzie Murdoch, who played Fookman. He was phenomenally disgusting as the serial killer. Fun fact, almost all of these actors hang dong in the movie. I can respect that. Amy Groening, played the other big role, Chelsea, she's not bad. Like Itsy Bitsy, Father's Day really shines as a special effects reel. The practical gore is grotesque and perfectly crafted. You rarely see a serial killer bite off genitalia in a movie, and you better believe it's nasty. 
hacked off limbs and other body parts, head destruction, even the practical gunshots in Father's Day are over the top and entertaining. Besides the gore, there is also the design and execution of Demon Fookman that must have been done by Stephen Kostansky. Demon Fookman is a big, beautiful behemoth. Huge kudos for how extremely gross Father's Day is. Even though it's filled with insane, over-the-top gore, I wouldn't say Father's Day comes off as a splatstick movie. The gore is done in a more gross-out manner than a comedic one. There's definitely gross-out gore in a splatstick movie, but Father's Day doesn't use its gore for comedic effect like Brain Dead, The Machine Girl, and other movies in the genre do. It's more ew, ah, and less ha ha. Even though I wouldn't call Father's Day splatstick, the practical gore effects will delight gore fiends who love to pick apart how certain effects are done and make everyone else feel queasy. I only really bring up splatstick at all because I'm dumb and thought it was listed on a big splatstick movie list, but apparently Father's Day is not on there. Allegedly, the movie had only a $10,000 budget. I'm calling shenanigans on that, Wikipedia. There's no way that Father's Day only cost $10,000, unless the Astron 6 crew had a boatload of ride-or-die friends that were willing to be in a movie for nothing. That's technically possible. Father's Day is a great movie to watch if you are an aspiring practical effects artist. If you're looking for a horror comedy that's funny, Father's Day isn't it. Skip Father's Day and watch Psycho Goreman. I'll be checking out Manborg, another Astron 6 movie, next episode, and hope it'll be more fun than Father's Day. Number 5, The Boneyard, 1991, directed by James Cummins. Detective Jersey enlists the help of an old psychic pal named Allie to get to the bottom of some child murders. The main suspect is Dr. Chen, who says the dead kids are actually ancient demons that his cursed family has been dealing with for generations. Chen was keeping the demons calm by feeding them human flesh that he had access to as a mortician. Jersey, Ali, and others end up trapped in a mortuary basement with the demons. The front desk lady and her poodle turn into monsters after coming in contact with demon goo and have to be killed. Jersey, his partner, a random girl, and Allie make it out alive. The demons are the killers. The Boneyard was on a list of great splatstick movies that I found. I wouldn't call it a splatstick movie. There are elements like the monsterfied front desk woman and her poodle, but the gore in the movie is never played for laughs. The quality of the Boneyard I was able to track down was less than stellar. I could make out what was happening, but it looked rough. The three demons in the movie are some of the most unsettling, horrifying little buggers I've ever seen. I was wondering if they were really that intensely disturbing or if the crappy quality was just making them look more horrific. Looking at clearer pictures of them with a quick Google search confirms that the little demons in the boneyard are in fact some of the scariest designs I've ever seen. There were shots that held on them that genuinely skeeved me out. Given how goofy the front desk woman and her poodle look monsterfied, it's incredibly strange that the demon children's designs are as disturbing as they are. 
Something that definitely makes the demons more frightening is the actual use of children. I'm not sure if all of the demons were played by kids, but I was able to confirm at least one of them was played by an 11-year-old girl. The child proportions with the grotesque makeup comes together for the perfect frightening monsters. There's a short film called The Little Ghoul Girl Grows Up that was released in 2018 in which the girl that played one of the demons talks about her experience. I really want to watch it but haven't been able to find it at this time. The biggest star in the Boneyard is Phyllis Diller who played the front desk woman. Her performance is fun and campy and the monsterified version of her was fun to see. Allie was played by Deborah Rose. She is not that bad in the movie, given that most of the acting is weak. Ed Nelson played Jersey and didn't bring enough energy to the role. The Boneyard takes its time. Lots of boring, unnecessary sequences are stretched out, with the only explanation being to reach feature-length time. The initial demon attack, in which multiple people are ripped apart, isn't even shown on screen. It would have been a lot of fun to see a wacky, gory demon rampage if comedy was intended. Turns out the VHS came with two sleeves, one that advertised it as a horror movie and another yellow poodle sleeve that said it was a comedy. If I had to decide which box to present the boneyard in, I would have to go with the horror box. The demon children are legitimately unsettling, and the monster-fied Phyllis Diller and Poodle aren't nearly as comedic as they could have been. Having the Poodle fetch a pipe bomb to defeat it is a funny concept, but the way it's presented isn't really played for laughs. The biggest issue with the Boneyard as a comedy is the fact that the characters with the most screen time are not joking around and see the threats as very, very real. The Boneyard delivers when it comes to tiny demons that will haunt your nightmares, but the bone-chilling, creepy kiddos aren't enough of a pull to sit down and watch the whole movie, which is one-third neat practical effects and two-thirds monotonous slog. If you're in the mood for some spookiness, see if you can find some clips of the demons. Number 6, Poultrygeist, Night of the Chicken Dead, 2006, directed by Lloyd Kaufman. When Arby's high school sweetheart Wendy comes back from college a lesbian, Arby decides to get a job at the fast food chicken joint she's protesting against to win her back. The chicken joint was built on a Native American burial ground. The chickens, which appear to be possessed by spirits, start killing and possessing people. Arby and Wendy survive and drive off in a car with a little girl they rescued. Turns out the little girl is chicken-possessed and causes Wendy to crash. The car explodes. The spirit inhabited chickens, chicken-possessed, old Arby, and undead graveyard ghouls are the killers. Old Arby accidentally kills at least one non-possessed person while gunning down chicken zombies. The undead graveyard ghouls kill a pervert in the beginning of the movie. I've been on the quest for new splatstick goodness and thought to myself, why not try a trauma movie? I wasn't a huge trauma fan before watching Poltergeist, and now I think I'll skip trauma altogether. Maybe older trauma stuff is more than being offensive just to be offensive, but all of the tee-hee what we're saying is so politically incorrect stuff isn't even presented as a joke 
90% of the time. I didn't originally plan on watching Poultry Geist, but after starting another movie that I'll talk about in the seventh topic, I pulled up a new list of Splatstick movies, which listed Poultrygeist as a fun yet offensive movie filled with splatter. As I said in the Father's Day segment, I don't dislike offensive humor in general, but I do hate offensive humor where the joke is, haha, they said something racist or homophobic. At least Father's Day was going for absurd humor and not just going for low-hanging fruit, stereotypical jokes. They were really rotten fruit on the ground like Poultry Geist does. Funnily enough, Troma writer, director, producer, actor Lloyd Kaufman also produced Father's Day and played God in it. It's hard to explain, but if I'm trying to oversimplify my feelings from what I've seen at least, John Waters good, Lloyd Kaufman bad. Both make shocking films, but one's got an artistic vision. If there are some trauma films that will change my mind, let me know. There were things in Poultry Geist that I did enjoy. I like the musical elements. The songs are fun and nice on the ears. I can't believe I'm saying this, but the music in Poultry Geist is way better than the music in another horror musical that recently came out called Anna and the Apocalypse. The songs in Anna and the Apocalypse are very bad. Besides the musical numbers in Poultry Geist, the zany, absurd, practical gore is fantastic and entertaining. When the zombified chicken people show up and the blood starts covering everything, Poultry Geist is a ton of fun. Lots of ridiculous gore is included, limbs chopped off, heads yanked from their shoulders, noses and eyes eaten, and a great scene where a face is pressed into a meat slicer. The meat slicer kill looks exactly how I wanted the one in my short, the Bloody Reuben, to be. Unfortunately, we didn't have the time, know-how, or the ability to slice up a face and spray blood all over the deli we shot at. I respect all of the effects work and creativity in Poultrygeist. That's what Splatstick is all about. Goofy, absurd gore that's so over-the-top it's hilarious. If the eye-rolling offensive comedy attempts were removed, and the movie instead focused solely on the practical effects work, Poultry Geist could easily end up a new favorite. The movie could even keep all the gross-out poop humor. It's not my cup of tea, but I can appreciate practical bathroom destruction at the butt of Jared from Subway. Yeah, there's a character that's referred to as Jared from Subway who destroys a bathroom. There aren't any jokes in the movie about the true disgusting monster Subway Man is, but that's only because Poultry Geist came out before the arrest. If it came out after, I know Lloyd Kaufman wouldn't have tread lightly. The acting in Poultry Geist works. Everyone is giving all the camp and energy they have. It's nice to see the actors really going for it. There is a lot in Poultry Geist that I appreciate, like the musical numbers, practical gore, kill creativity, and energetic acting, but the being offensive just for the sake of being offensive and the pacing make Poultry Geist a skip as a whole. If you want to see some insane chicken person zombie action, consider watching highlights, but don't waste your time or money on the whole feature. Number 7, Gutterballs, 2008, directed by Ryan Nicholson. I'm not doing a summary. I'm not even really doing a section here. All I'm here to do is say I watched about 20 minutes 
of this vile, heinous, mean-spirited filth and had to turn it off when a killer didn't end up appearing at any point nine minutes into a prolonged, disgusting, obviously shot for kicks gang rape scene. I regret not turning the movie off earlier when it was just characters spewing misogynistic hatred and unforgivable bigotry. I'm a completionist and have sat through a lot of terrible movies, but I refuse to sit through hateful, inexcusable garbage. This is not the way to make your audience despise your characters. It's the way to make your audience despise you. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 90, Killer Do's, Splatter Galore, and Sneaky Spiders. Sorry about getting so real with the seventh topic there. I'm hoping I'll find some movies that capture the true meaning of Splatstick since it's one of my favorite genres. But I'm tired of watching these movies that are labeled Splatstick that just end up being overly offensive just for the sake of being offensive. I'm going to watch Brain Dead again to remind myself why I fell in love with Splatstick. If you feel like it, consider leaving a review or rating on iTunes. I think that would be neat if you did. I believe the next episode will have both a new Hulark, Hulu Into the Dark for the Layman, installment, and Nick Cage vs. Five Nights at Freddy, aka Willy's Wonderland. I'm actually looking forward to both. Until then, consider avoiding fried chicken covered in bubbly green stuff.